0: To your Bible, custom designed to your Bible reading plan and weekly podcast by myself, Chris Case, pastor of Resonate Church. And I'm here with Sarah Pasquale, our executive director. Hey there. And we are still in 2 Samuel, uh, another week uh, in the book. And next week, don't worry, we'll split it up a little bit more. But um, we're going to continue hearing about David and uh, all the mess and the fallout of that mess that is going on with his family and in the country. And so uh, we're started off by uh, introduced uh, to Zeba, who uh, seems to to hide hide t- tail out of town, uh, and we're going to follow up on that story on the back end because uh, we're going to find out uh, from yeah
1: we'll see that happening with a few different people. So we start kind of like with the author setting up like this is going on and this is going on, and then we kind of move to the scene, and then we'll come back to these stories.
0: Yep, and then uh, Shemai as well. Uh, we, we sort of hear about this man who's. Um, cursing David as the king and telling him that all this is happening because he's so terrible and uh, David has a, a strange reaction uh normally I feel like David uh, is is really defensive of of the king role in a way that uh, mm-hmm. doesn't doesn't seem to appreciate anyone speaking badly about the king um, but here he's sort of like well maybe he's right <laughs> it's like he seems to sort of acknowledge that he's he's screwed up and maybe what Shammai is saying is true. Maybe it's coming from the Lord. He's not sure. and so Yeah, it's and, hard to
1: tell if David is doing this out of righteousness or if he's really kind of like having an identity crisis and even doubting his calling as a king. I mean, we know that cursing a ruler is forbidden in Exodus. It talks yeah. about that, but um, it's hard. I guess we can't really read into what David is saying here, but we know he's not in the best of places.
0: So yeah, at, at some point and, and we have to sort of get our heads around this. Like, David's got to be just like in the dumps. Like yeah. everything, everything in his life has just fallen apart. He's no longer, he's on the run again. He's, he's all of us just a mess in such a way that he's got to feel dejected. Like maybe he's still hopeful of the promise that God gave around um, his throne and, and his offspring. But at the same time, like in some ways, functionally, he's no longer the king right now. And, um, mm-hmm. And so there's just a mess of a situation that he's in.
1: Yeah. So we have his son Absalom entering Jerusalem.
0: Yeah. And um, and this Ahithophel in- individual <laughs> who uh, has given good counsel in the past or given counsel that people at least respect. Uh, I can't say if it was good or not. Um, many gives Absalom this sort of statement around um, taking over uh, David's concubines, uh, which fulfills that prophecy that Nathan talked about.
1: Yeah. And while it's... It's kind of, I don't know, it's just a hard, I feel like we're turning to a a pretty hard corner here, in that two weeks ago in our Bible reading plan, we were reading about the ark being returned, and everyone worshiping God, and this is going to be the Israel that everyone longed for, and then suddenly, um, sin was not dealt with by David, and everything starts to fall apart, and of course, there's actually been a really long span of time here, Yeah, almost 24
0: years between the ark entering and and this. So.
1: Okay. So it's been 24 years so so put that into perspective a little bit but it does just feel like a, a little bit of a I get some whiplash.
0: Yeah. I mean, yeah, <laughs> that's it, that's not uncommon. I mean, we read about them leaving uh, uh, through the through the Red Sea and then immediately after that grumbling about things or we read Joshua's uh, conquering and then immediately get into Judges and so yeah. um sometimes yeah, the the Bible makes sure to like going all right before you think <laughs> that yeah. sin doesn't still caused tremendous effects and that we're, we're free from it. Just a reminder yeah, that these are true.
1: Yeah. So, but David has an ally in Absalom's palace.
0: Yeah. This guy named Hushai. And so, um, that, that, Ahithophel, who was giving a prophecy before, uh, was, or, or a guidance, I guess, not prophecy. Um, it, it comes up with a plan. He's like, all right, let me, let me go with 12,000 men and we'll take out David. And maybe a plan that would have been successful, but Hushai's. Like, hey, um, uh, let's change that up. Let's let, Why don't you get all of Israel to go? As if, like, that will delay things in some ways. Um, and Hushai works out. And he starts working with the priest to send messengers to David. Uh, David's sort of on the run. He receives hospitality in the process. Um, and, and it's worthwhile. Like, I, I think... I think there's some parallels to David's first running and second running uh, things to look at if you were to want to go back and go, okay, where are the stories happening and when? Um, but there's a lot of complex allegiances right now. And there's a lot of who's on whose side, which person, and, and there's got to be some of that from Absalom going, all right, who, who in this court is on my side? Who's still with David? He knows that some people are working behind his back. He's just not sure probably who. Uh, and it's just a mess. Even Joab, Joab's with David, but Joab's brother-in-law sort of takes a role with Absalom. Um, it's just chaos.
1: Yeah. and Yeah. I mean, not only is there like who's on whose side, but they're all related to each other. I mean, yeah. which is crazy in and of itself. And so like, you know, Absalom's commander is Absalom's cousin, who is also David's nephew and uh, the whole thing.
0: Yep. It's, it's a total mess. Ugh. And speaking of a mess, they end up in these forests in Ephraim where they're having a battle. And the forest uh, certainly um, poses trouble for Absalom and his soldiers. And at There's some point, Absalom riding hair. with his long, flowing, gorgeous hair that... Um, we heard so much about earlier. Um, and that hair gets caught in a tree. <laughs> so he's left just hanging from a tree branch in the middle of this forest. Uh, David's been listened to David's instruction, which is don't kill him. But Joab, uh, like before, uh, kills the person that David says don't kill um, and maybe does the right thing. I don't know.
1: <laughs> yeah, we, we were talking about this and we we're both a little bit torn. And I guess, I guess we don't actually know because it's not said, but uh, Joab should have followed David's instructions. But we also know that David did not think very clearly or strategically when it came to his family so what would have happened if he hadn't killed absalom what do you have brought him back i don't, I don't know so we don't know what's right or what's wrong here but yeah it's hard but, to determine
0: but joab does constantly seem like one that's pretty quick to kill somebody yes um and so there's some questions about joab as well i mean david and joab both have their questions of of why uh-huh. and motivations and priorities and um, morality so, yeah so who knows yeah um and, and Joab uh, probably in foresight knows that David may not be happy with this news. And so when when the priest's son is ready to go and the priest is ready to go run and tell David um, – Joab's sort of like, okay, why don't we send a Cushite? And and you got to remember, this is a this is not part of the the, the people of Cush are, are a different group of people uh, outside of the Israelites. And so um, I think there was very little value probably put on a Cushite life. And so he's like, why doesn't the Cushite go deliver the message just in case David is angry and kills him? And so um, yeah, he sends a Cushite instead of the priest's son, who was probably a lot more valuable uh, in in terms of perspective here. And so uh, it becomes a giant foot race between the priest's son and. And the kushite and the priest son gets there first. yeah surprisingly the priest son gets there first with mm-hmm. all of his various garments he probably has on
1: but it's fairly deceptive with david <laughs> david's like why are you here and he's like i don't i there's news yeah, i'm not know. sure what it is right when i
0: left there was a bit of a chaos I don't, it, it, uh, but i'm here <laughs> and then the, david sort of sets him aside and the kushite's like well uh your son's dead and uh, brings him the news and david's Torn up about David it. Is He's just very crushed. sad. He breaks out in like a little song about Absalom. Cause you know, David's a singer, he Writes songs. That's what he does. Yeah. Um, but it's just a mess.
1: I just, yeah, it's a real picture of, of the messiness of this world we live in. I think, David, of course, is going to grieve the death of his son. Um, though his son was acting out in wickedness, David still loved him, though. And David says, I would have given up my position as king in order to preserve your life. And I think we see a picture of God in this. We see God himself giving up his, his position as God through Jesus to save us, even though we did not deserve it. And so the difference here, of course, is that Christ was guiltless, and David was experiencing the consequences of his sin, um, but uh, it's, yeah, I just feel like it's a picture of our need for salvation and how we are not worthy of that sacrifice, and yet God gave it to us anyway.
0: Yeah. And so uh, in a surprising twist, David doesn't um, end up rebuking Joab in this process, but the vice versa happens. Um, Joab comes back with all these men who have defeated David's sort of enemy and uh, his son. And David's all teary-eyed and weeping about um his son dying and has seemed to pay no mind to all these men who have been fighting for him and who have been working to risk. restore him yeah. as king and stuff like that. And so uh, Joab's kind of calling him out for it, being like, look, our, our soldier's morale is at a low and you're not really helping crying up here. And so why don't you come out here and, and, and help and, yeah. and and show face and help? We just want a big victory. Come help us.
1: Yeah. I think David's being, I mean, honestly, I, I understand that he's grieving the loss of his son. I don't, I don't want to minimize that, but he seems to be ignoring the work that God has done, and he's not submitting to God's sovereign will in all of this. You know, God is fulfilling his covenant to David in this circumstance through keeping David on the throne. But David's love for Israel seems to have been forgotten in some ways compared to his own losses, which, again, are valid losses. But it just comes back to David's poor decisions earlier on.
0: Yep. So David returns to Jerusalem to kind of retake the throne. And so what's he going to do? He's got all these dissenters that sided with his son. He's trying to restore his kingdom again. Um, he's trying to, and, and he ends up showing some levels of reconciliation with some folks. Um, he kind of overshoots with uh, the folks in Judah. Um, but in, in this reconciliation process, he ousts Joab as his sort of right-hand man and actually puts in, uh, uh, Absalom's right hand man in Amasa yeah. uh, which is going to end up causing some problems between Again, Amasa nephew, and Joab. Again his nephew
1: I think I mean he's like okay and the whole thing it just it's crazy to me.
0: Yeah but David uh, parted some of his enemies like Shammai uh, he sort of works things out between the Ziba and uh, Mephi Bosheth kind of conversation there uh, and um, but he's definitely David has um, reconciled with Judah like instantly. Like it's like his people that he's willing to work with. And, even
1: though they were the ones who kind of left him. Yeah. Well, yeah.
0: His 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 son set up throne in Judah. And yeah. so um yeah, it's 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 pretty problematic. Uh and and the whole I mean if you've read through your Old Testament for know the history, like there will be a division between the tribes in the South and the tribes in the north. But it didn't just happen after Solomon. Like all of this has been building up through David, through Solomon, through the families um, before the, the, the true split ever even happened.
1: Yeah. And so it kind of starts around this time. And even with, you know, David reconciling with Judah, they all move into Jerusalem and they don't give the other Northern tribes time to join David on the journey back into Jerusalem to celebrate right. what is done. Yep. And it creates a little tension.
0: It does create some tension, uh, <laughs> tension that has been going on. I mean, we got to remember back to right. Saul at the end of Saul's life in the beginning of David's life, David set up shop in Judah uh, while there was still a King to the North before they, they, they took over the whole country. And so um, the Northern people are not so fond that. this all. And they have a big rebellion uh, in, in the form of, of this guy named Sheba, and so uh, David goes to to deal with it by sending Amasa, his new right hand man, and and he, Amasa takes a little longer than David wants to. He says, Abishai, Joab goes with him, and while on the way they run into Joab and company. Run into Amasa, and Joab just cuts him right open, <laughs> cuts his guts right out of him, <laughs> and and basically like. Leaves Amasa to die. We kind of are told, like, all right, and Joab's army could just kept marching, and they kind of left Sheba on the side of, the, or um, Amasa on the side of the road. And so Joab gets to the Sheba in this town named Abel. Eventually, this wise woman, and we're going to see just how wise she is, comes out and talks to Joab, and really Joab's just there to get Sheba's head. Like he just he just wants Sheba dead for the rebellion, and that's it. And so she, in all of her wisdom, goes back to the town. Uh, they he, she convinced them, hey, all Joab really wants is this guy, so they kill him, they toss his head over the wall, and uh and now Amasa's dead, Sheba's dead, and Joab gets to go back home a hero. So Yeah,
1: I mean she does um, kinda of prevent their whole town from being yeah. decimated, but
0: even more so with, with Joab, who I would yeah. expect to come and basically wipe yeah. out the town. Mm-hmm.
1: So I, I don't know, everybody, I'm just kind of over reading about all these military <laughs> battles. Like, it just seems to me that nobody knows who they're fighting, what they're fighting, who's going on with what. David is not leading his people well right now. They're just and everyone is doing what they think is best and going behind each other's backs and killing them. You know, they're all out against each other instead of being united under this ruler who is supposed to unite Israel. And, you know, we put is such a heavy emphasis on David's failure with Bathsheba but I really think it's his parenting and how he deals with his family in general showing favoritism and overlooking sin Um, consider what would have been avoided if David had, had handled Tamar's rape appropriately Amnon would have died probably but Absalom would still be alive Israel wouldn't be turning on David he wouldn't be dealing with uprisings left and right and tens of thousands of people were killed in what we read about today because David's failure to act with equity and justice like he initially was ruling. So yep. just step back and I hope that so far reading this has maybe changed your perspective a little bit on David. Again, he's no like he's no less a man after God's own heart. But let's not make the turning point like I mean, let's not make I guess like the biggest thing we talk about with David his failure with Bathsheba when there's a lot of other sins that impacted the kingdom in in more significant ways it seems.
0: Yeah. Definitely. Yeah. All right. New Testament, first New Testament. Corinthians. Still, uh, well, we're gonna have a couple more weeks here. Um, and uh, we're gonna talk as you read through this long chapter. Uh, there's a lot about marriage, stuff about divorce, uh, stuff about being single, all these kind of things throughout these uh, 40 verses in chapter seven and then into chapter eight and nine. But I think um,
1: just as a pause, like when we When we start to read these kinds of things, be careful when you read that you're not going in with specific questions you want answered. First, look and read to understand the big picture of what Paul is addressing, and then maybe your questions will be answered or maybe they won't.
0: Yeah. And since, I mean, you all have read this this past week. like It's important as you sort of read, particularly in this chapter, Paul uses phrases um, I think I pulled out a few of them, uh, phrases like, uh, you should do this as a concession and not my command. I say, I, not the Lord, this is my rule. I have no command from the Lord, but give my judgment in my judgment. All those sort of phrases and actually only once says, not I, but the Lord says this. Um, there, there's a lot of phrasing like that throughout this whole section. And it, and it definitely feels like Paul is trying his best to address the Corinthians questions the Corinthians struggles around this issue around sex and marriage and how they should view it um, he has a few principles that do come from the Old Testament or Jesus himself around uh, divorce and a couple other things but for the most part he he is trying to answer questions but he's trying to answer questions for the Corinthian church and and, and he's using principles to guide some of these answers and and I think as we have read through it um, our our goal removed from Corinth is to get after right what are paul's principles that he is teaching around yeah. those issues as opposed to paul's advice for the church in corinth that's very specific and in a ways paul actually gives disclaimers saying this this is not the lord's command here i'm giving you suggestions and uh the way um things worked rabbinically and i think in early church is 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 that whole idea of binding and loosing and so um, churches still had to, and still to this day, have to make decisions around areas where scripture doesn't have a clear singular principle uh, to go, okay, like, what What do we do? What do we do in this sort of scenario versus this one? And they have to bind certain rules and then kind of hold open-handed loose certain rules. And so, I think Paul's trying to help this church way through some of that. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, yes, we can, we can have our similar principles as well, uh, but like, what is what is Paul after when it comes to marriage, and what is Paul after when it comes to sex, and what is Paul after when it comes to divorce in this chapter? I think become the guiding questions we need to ask. Yeah, and so he says a lot in a town that's very sexualized to begin with, and and so ultimately his starting point is: look, sex is for your wife and your husband or your husband. Like that is who you should be having sex with, and not prostitutes, not concubines, not slaves, not anything outside of that. Um, he's sort of setting up the guardrails as. At right from the get-go.
1: Yeah. Um, and not only that, it's, it's again, it's an act of worship before God, and it's meant to be offered in service to your spouse. And that's on both sides.
0: Yeah. It's a pretty big principle that he sort of gives around um, withholding or not withholding, where he, he sort of takes the paradigm of sex and says, look, your sex and your marriage, it's not about you. Uh, it, it is about serving the other. Um, and and honestly, if, if most marriages thought that way, and both parties said, "All right, how can I serve my spouse related to sex and and and, and take this thing this gift that God has given us to serve my spouse?" I, I would argue both sides would um, through healthy communication, would work out so much, just related to that principle, right um, where it's not about demand, it's not about um being a doormat and subservient—it's—it's uh, it's about serving somebody mm-hmm. else, um, and so uh, I think that that deals with so right. many problems related to sex, uh, both in Corinth and into our day.
1: Yeah. And secondly, being single is great, and Paul highly encourages it.
0: Yeah, he calls it a gift. I mean, he says both are gifts. Like, whether right. you're single, it's a gift, and if you're married, it's a gift. And marriage comes with it with its own set of complications. And if you're single, like there's some benefit to that too. And uh, both are good. Marriage tells a certain story of Christ's church. Singleness becomes a place where you can have a sole focus on Jesus and Jesus alone in terms of um, things that require your attention or your responsibility. And Mm so like he he points out just the beauty of both and the importance of both, that one's not more favor from God than another. Uh, Both are ways to be human and true like even jesus like the very savior we have technically like he never got married and so uh, to to put marriage as like the 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 full picture of what it means to be human um, I, I don't know if that's i think paul's working against that for his people
1: for sure yeah and it's any time where the church or in general or christians elevate marriage above singleness we're doing something wrong.
0: Yeah. Or are Yeah. And the church has had a bad history with that. Um, that sort of marriage is the end all be all uh, of adulthood. Um, and I think culturally we've, we've done that too beyond the church, yeah. but, um, but for Paul, it's just not that, that, right. that there's a gift that comes in abstention and chastity through, through, through possibly life. And so, um, yeah.
1: And, and if you are single and it doesn't feel like a gift, I just encourage you even just once today to stop God and say, Lord, this doesn't feel like a gift, but I thank you for the gift. Yeah. and thank Him for it, even yeah. if it doesn't feel like it.
0: And I think Paul deals with like, I think he deals with, it with men and women. Sarah brought up a good point. I think for men, the question of like, all right, if you can't control yourself, you're just lusting, lusting, lusting. Like there is a solution and it is in marriage. And like, if you, if you're so, um, if your mind's so just stuck there, then, then pursue marriage, and it's okay. Um, but I think in some ways, uh, there's also the disposition of like, I just want to be married, and I just want to have kids, and and that becomes lust. It's not necessarily the a bedroom style of lust. It's like the, the the family and the and the, the, the the sometimes we call some a little bit American dreamish kind of lust that um, that 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 there is a solution for too. Like if that is the thing that is consuming you then don't feel like you have to stay married either. Like don't feel like one is better than the stay other. Single. It's okay. Um, but um, trying to deal with that, that yeah, stay single. i um, trying to deal with um, those desires in a way that's healthy, a way that they're, they're no longer the main thing and, and to try to curtail it in some ways.
1: Yeah. And then last he speaks against divorce.
0: And yeah, um, divorce is certainly not always clean in scripture. Uh, there's, there's a, a few uh, very clear commands related to infidelity and th- stuff like that, but um, here Paul gets into conversations around separation. I think it's in the conversations about abandonment. Um, so th- there's some vagueness. Churches aren't always in the same camp on this, but uh, there's some. There seems to be um, permission given uh, in some form of separation for 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 a woman to to sort of leave, not necessarily divorce, but leave the 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 spouse, and then uh, questions of okay, well, what. What happens if um, the the non-Christian or the person who uh, doesn't know Jesus uh, either doesn't even claim to know Jesus, or maybe by their actions or proving not to, to to be a believer? Like, what happens if they sort of just abandon the whole relationship and the whole covenant? And and Paul gives some instructions there that uh, allow for. Um, that person not to be bound by that situation, um, which I think is important. Uh, there's some ways that we play that out here at Resonate. I know different churches do it differently, um, but, it, but it's really important to try to drive through like, okay, like what does abandonment actually look like? What are the conditions of that? Where, where does abuse fit into this? Where do those kind of things, which gets into the binding and losing questions of of as a church, like how do these principles around what marriage and divorce are, how do they play out? And, and, and how do we make sense of those with a whole lot of wisdom from Christ in, in these situations? Yeah. And so, um, but Paul gives us by, I, I think when you start at verse 17, like the principles behind it all. by yes. saying like, look, like wherever God has you, whether you're married, whether you're not, whether you are owning a company or a lowly employee, uh, whether you're a woman, whether you're a man, whatever your situation may be in, like That's what's assigned to you. And so keep the commandments of God and and live it out. That's your guiding principle. Uh, Your lot in life um, does not make you better or worse than others. No one has a special advantage before the the Lord himself. And so, um, yeah, live out. The world has its own sinful patterns but you are bond service to Christ. You're not bond service to anybody else. And so um, live out your obedience. Yeah.
1: And I think it's unique within Christianity that with the exception of a few different situations or careers, like when you become a Christian, there's not a lot about your practical external life that you have to change, but it begins with an internal change of heart. So Paul is saying, if you're doing this before you became a Christian, continue to do it. Yeah. If, I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a simple but beautiful invitation to say like we can be lights where we are doing what we are, how we are, there's not a major change externally that needs to take place just because I became a Christian.
0: Yeah. But then Paul, once again, in this advice type section also goes, yes, but if you are single and you decide to get married, that's okay too. That's totally fine. Um, So As um, long as it's
1: another believer. Yeah.
0: yeah. So um, yeah, there's all this sort of Paul kind of playing both sides a little bit as he works through this. Uh, And then he gets into this conversation about food. Uh, And once again, food tied into sort of pagan or Greek worship, super common, both in the temples themselves, but even um, amongst communities, there were often like guilds and stuff like that that had their own little patron gods, and they would have feasts uh, and stuff like that. There'd be drinking and other stuff tied into it. And so um, food tied into worship was super, super common. Uh, I know we do communion in, in the Protestant church, but um, in a lot of different um, um spiritual world uh, outside of the church like meals are so important to um, I mean even even in the Jewish heritage we've we've come from as Christians meals are so central to um, some of the celebrations and worship and so Paul's got to deal with that in the church in Corinth as all these people go okay like what do I do with food? And what do I do if I'm invited to a temple or a guild party? And what do I do with food sold at the market the next day that was offered to a uh, God? Like, can I eat with those? And can I not? And Mm -hmm. what if people see me? And what if someone says it's offered to a God? And he will, Paul will deal with this again in chapter 10, but at least here, the initial sort of application for Paul is, Hey, um, if anybody sees you eating temple food or food worship to another God, and it causes them to, not understand. Maybe they they don't understand the exclusivity of Jesus, and so that gospel that you preach gets muddy. Where they think you believe in Jesus, but you also still believe in Aphrodite. If if it's causing confusion for your other brother or sister, then then you need to be able to take your freedoms because you do have freedoms. Like we know that this food's not offered to anybody at all. Like idols are idols, um, but. If you have these freedoms and you're exercising the freedom in such a way that a brother or sister gets confused about the gospel, like it becomes less clear, then you need to be willing to lay down and and set aside your freedoms in order to serve a brother or sister and make sure that they um, understand what the gospel is really about
1: yeah and I think this is where this has got to hit home the most for us because initially we'll read this and be like I don't think this applies we're not dealing with sacrificed meat in the temples and then you step back and realize that everyone is asserting their own individualism their own rights because they have freedom to do something and they're not going to consider the other and this is what we do as Americans we're such an individualistic culture and nation that we consume alcohol we dress how we want we watch what we want we buy what we feel like buying and people who are uncomfortable with it just have to deal with it and that's wrong like paul is saying that that um that we have to be willing to give all of this up for the good and the love of others and Mm -hmm. then he goes on a little, he gets really pumped about it.
0: Yeah. I mean, and and it's so important. Like, yeah, we, we we read about the food, but there's such an application. And, um, I think sometimes, yeah, we, we get lost in missing the point. And, and like pastorally as sort of a leader, I have to constantly think like, all right, if I drink alcohol in public, how's that going to be perceived? Or, um, if someone finds out I'm watching a certain TV show, that has like a certain amount of violence or something like that, Mm -hmm. that I feel total freedom in, does that cause them to be confused around what God values or something like that? And so um there, there's all those sort of questions that, that constantly get played out. And I would even argue, like even the conversation about masks and mask wearing and in a church and stuff like that, somewhat plays into some of this mm-hmm. of going like, yeah. okay, I have freedom, I have freedom not to wear a mask in, in certain settings and 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 feel that way. But at the same time, I got brothers and sisters in Christ that I don't I don't want them to think I don't love my neighbor by not wearing a mask and, and muddy up what the gospel is really about. And so I will serve by wearing it. And so I know I got a little political there, but, um, I think it all does tie in as well. Yeah. We're just so used to free. We're Americans. We are the byproduct of rebellion and freedom. Mm -hmm. And so, um, this area of Paul's teaching would probably be an area that would work in great against our cultural predispositions the most. Yeah. And so, yeah, he goes off on a tirade. I just,
1: (laughs) I love it. I love what he says here. I just, he's so passionate about. He's getting heated because he believes so strongly in the beauty and the purity of the gospel of Jesus Christ that he is just horrified that anything would get in the way or mar that story of the gospel he's telling.
0: Yeah. And so, um, he, he does a couple things at first he starts by saying, look, like, I have a right to collect um, money, provided or or, or uh, take a collection or, or provision from you in the church in Corinth. He even points out the other apostles are even getting uh, help, but him and him and him and Barnabas are not. And he's and he's sort of like, look, I'm I'm an apostle too, and I absolutely, even by the the Old Testament law, uh, have rights here to 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 um, collect uh, from from you all to, to support his ministry. But then he's like, but. Even if you guys were offer, I would still refuse. And and he talks about the um, that he doesn't want the cor the the church in Corinth to have anything against him as if he thinks like he's on that he's only doing ministry because he gets paid for it or because of profit like he he, all he wants is for the gospel to go forth and anything that gets in the way of that or confuses that he wants to avoid it which is really the same principle going back to the food question and and so Paul's like you know what my reward is for doing this it's it's that in my preaching I may present the gospel free of charge like that's what he wants and 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 he's willing to be a servant to make it happen of, yeah. of all cultures. So uh, he's willing to lay aside whatever freedoms to, to, to be with the Jews or to be with the Greeks or be with those in poverty um, so that he can be in it and with them and tell the gospel to them. And so um, he's willing to discipline. He's willing to to, to do the work to, to set aside freedoms he may have, to, to to not get caught napping in sin and stuff like that. And, and, and to work to remove any obstacles uh, so that, Christ could go forth, and it's such a it's yeah. such a beautiful chapter.
1: I think Paul's worst case scenario here is that something that he does is a hindrance towards someone hearing or believing the gospel and the purity of that. And I just want to point out this last verse about like disciplining his body and making it a slave. You know, I think sometimes we take this verse and we put it on, I don't know, T-shirts or we like hang it by our barbells or whatever so we can be good at working out or be healthy. And this is not at all the context of this passage, you guys. Paul's disciplining his body is withholding from himself that he has the right, like things he has the right to get, he withholds for the sake of the gospel. Right. So where am I Where am I living not as a servant, um, but seeking comfort instead at possibly the risk or the detriment of the gospel. And does that grieve me or upset me? Not as much as it should, but, uh, this has really left me reflecting a lot and praying a lot that I also will discipline my body and make it my slave and be comfortable and free to say no to things that give me pleasure or comfort for the sake of the gospel. Yeah.
0: And so, yeah, from, from just about every decision we make from, Maybe cars we drive, to um, uh, things we purchase, to um, places we go, things we, we post we about use. on social media, language we use, uh, pol- politics we talk about or don't talk about. Like, there's a lot in this category of okay, if I if I buy this thing, if I do this thing, if I say this thing, is, is it going to become a stumbling block that's beyond the gospel for people not to be able to hear the gospel? And um, Paul's Paul's constantly taking this position of, in order to serve others, in order for the gospel to go forth, like, I, I got to set this aside. Um, and, um, and, and I think we got to be wise about how that happens yeah. in a way that we got to be, it, it's just more rare for us to think through. Yeah. Psalm 5. Yeah.
1: So, David... <laughs> David talks a lot about dealing with evil and wicked in the psalm. And I think it makes sense with his context as king and ruler. He's probably facing a lot more atrocities and wickedness. Um, And he does a great job emphasizing the righteousness of God. And again, I mean, I just think stepping back and comparing what we know about God and comparing it to the world around us, um, let's rejoice in the righteousness of God and despise the wickedness around us.
0: Yeah, And, and I like that. They're sort of the God doesn't tolerate wickedness. God doesn't put up with some of the stuff. They're sort of the just side of God. But then David's sort of like, but I only because of your steadfast love can enter your temple. And so um, there's even a little bit of a gospel component where I think David David recognizes it's really only God's steadfast love that has provided any sort of connection back to the Father. Yeah, and the Psalm 10. Uh, this is a an acrostic poem, which means uh, there's sort of an alphabetical setup, um, and it's reversed in, in Psalm 10. Psalm 9 and Psalm 10 are supposed to be read uh, together. Uh, why they split them up in the history of forming the canon, I don't know. Uh, but Psalm 10 provides much more of a lament-type psalm compared mm-hmm. to Psalm 9 um, and a call for God to, to enact justice.
1: Yeah, I think— um- I appreciate that the emphasis here is that some of the worst atrocities are done in secret and in stealthiness, and they, the people who suffer are the poor, and the rich are the ones who overlook them. And again, like let's step back for a second. If you're an American and listening to this, you're probably the rich. Um, not in all the cases, but in most of the cases. And so the author continues to ask God for justice. There are so many psalms around justice. And are we looking around at the world enough um, and feeling that pain that we are also crying out to God for justice in the same way.
0: Yeah. At some point, maybe when we start into the prophets, it, it might be worthwhile to, to go back through the conversation around cries for justice, um, empire, kingdom building versus like Shalom, God's kingdom, stuff like that. And so, um, cause we'll see that as the prophets go. Certainly we see that in the Psalm and um, the question of, of Israel's struggles. Are they, idolatry struggles around what they worship um, or are they also uh, justice struggles about how they treat people. And and I know those two are ultimately connected, but um, it's an important paradigm that I think sometimes we underplay as we read the old Testament and in Psalm 24. uh, Yeah. Yeah.
1: It's, It's a messianic Psalm. I think Christ is the one with the clean hands and the pure heart and he has made a way for us to enter God's presence
0: Yeah, this becomes for me a little bit of a teaching example of, um, and and I'm picking up from others like Spurgeon and and Matthew Henry, these great theologians where, um, it's important to note that when these psalms, particularly the messianic stuff, sometimes it's written and uh, the original crowd hears it completely one way. Mm, that yeah. makes sense in their context; it makes sense in her day. So this was a, a psalm that was read when the temple, when when the uh, the ark was brought into the temple, um, and, and so um, so when it comes to like open up your holy gates and stuff like that, there there would have been a, an actual context that they people would have thought like oh like the gates of the temple and stuff like that and so but at the same time there's there's definitely messianic language there's definitely ways this points forward to jesus and so um as we read psalms and we're gonna deal with this in the prophets as we read them there's ways that things should be read in their context that they would have understood but also the ways that they point forward as well all right next week
1: So I think in the Old Testament, pay attention to the raising up of Solomon as a king. What do you see? What is this showing us in our bigger readings? And um, how is it a fulfillment of the Davidic covenant? And where are we seeing some of the errors of David um, impacting the kingdom and the future of the kingdom? And then in the New Testament, I just— I am really enjoying tracing the larger threads of the themes of First Corinthians that we're reading in. And so we're going to kind of end next week reading about the spiritual gifts. And why do you think Paul kind of works his way up to this idea of spiritual gifts and love, which we're going to hit on the week afterwards? Uh, so pay attention to those subjects and how they all work together.
0: Yeah, it's a it's actually a slight bummer that the, the chapter breaks at the end of 12 because 12, 13, and 14 are probably best read together yeah. uh, as actually a large chiasm, but um, we'll deal with that in two weeks, not next week. Uh, and so for me, the Old Testament, um, look at the details of the census. You might notice that there's a few things that are different in the way that Samuel records the census and the way Chronicles resorts to census, like um, some of the culpability, even the ways that they list the countries and stuff like Anyways, there are the tribes. Um, so what do you think is going on and, and how might, each author's different times, agendas, all that maybe affect the telling of what happened in history. Um, and then the New Testament, yeah, with the cultural context in Corinth is still pretty huge. We're going to get to head coverings. They're uh, going to deal with the Lord's Supper. Um, and and it's important to kind of keep asking, like, what is going on on the ground in Corinth to cause some of these problems? And think through some of the stuff we've already talked about, where it's like, how do? what's the principle Paul's after here? So when it comes to head coverings, what's the principle called? Paul's after, to, after here. What is he ultimately dealing with and how does he think it should be dealt with versus like, all right, is this a universal principle? And I, I think we get lost in the wrong questions uh, for not asking um, uh, the, the broader, uh, how is Paul applying? So as you read through that stuff, think about it. And yeah. that's it for this week. Thank you y'all. guys.